I'm Vanessa Warren, and for this episode of Victorian Samplings, we've stitched together a trio of conversations about textiles. With the help of Brandy Goddard, we'll explore the history of spinning wheels, and we'll hear from curator Lucy Hines about the 19th century craze for crazy quilts. We begin with a fascinating account of how fabric scraps feature in a woman's very detailed record of her life. Please stay with us. It's a pleasure to welcome Dina Kalman-Spurl. Dina is Exhibit Team's leader at Naper Settlement in Naperville, Illinois. In addition to being an exhibit designer for Naper Settlement, Dina creates dramaturgical displays for Timeline Theatre in Chicago. Today, we speak with her about a fascinating and important artifact in the Naper Settlement's collection, a cloth scrapbook that belonged to a woman named Hannah Fitzler Alspa. Dina, before we turn to the object she made, can you tell us about Hannah Ditzler Alspa? Yes. Hannah was a farmer's daughter in Naperville, Illinois. She was not prominent. She was not, you know, you know, wealthy. Uh, her family had moved there from Pennsylvania, and uh, she was just a person who really felt like documenting her life was really important. She has many diaries that we have at Neighbor Settlement. There are diaries. She was a teacher. She was the town librarian. So she wasn't bored sitting around doing nothing. She had a very active life, but she had a real eye on history and a real sense of the importance of what she was doing. She's kind of a, an unusual and really fascinating personality in town. So this might be a bit of a tall order, Dina, but can you describe the scrapbook she made? Sure, sure. Actually, the scrapbook is 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 beautiful to me. It's it was actually purchased. It's not like she, you know, conjured the whole thing. It was a red leather bound scrapbook that, you know, has sort of the embossed gold lettering scrapbook on it. And um, you know, there's many pages. There's about 50 pages in the scrapbook, and some of them are kind of fraying at this point. So the the pages of the scrapbook have fabric scraps sewn into them. They're actually whip stitched into the pages. They're not glued on. And they are hundreds, hundreds of clothing scraps that she collected over the years. She collected stuff from during the Civil War until about 1903. She started the scrapbook, she says in 1887, which meant that she was saving the scraps somewhere, right? And then decided to put them into a scrapbook. But the most amazing thing about the scrapbook is the descriptions of what she's got in there. It's detailed. Everything has a story. She tells stories about when she got the fabric, how she got the fabric, how much she paid for what she got, how she made it, how she remade it, some alterations that some some dresses were from her mom, some dresses her sister and her made together. There's, I mean, just dozens and dozens of really interesting little anecdotes that go with all of the fabric. It's a really fascinating way to go about recording a life by documenting clothing worn season by season, year by year. I'm wondering, Dina, about moments in her personal history, whether as a buyer of cloth or a, perhaps a maker of her own clothes or just a wearer of clothing. Are there moments in her personal history that stand out for you? Yes, there's several. The, the, 
most fun thing about reading this was that you have an insight into the moments of time where she was creating the stuff and wearing the stuff. I have a couple of things in front of me that um, might be of interest. There's one fabric where she says, this was mother's dress once, but made over for me for a school dress in 1862 and 63. I wore it to several parties when I had to steal away unbeknownst to the family. So she's, she's writing this stuff down and she's got the, the clothing, the memory of the clothing is almost like they are moments in time for her. You know, she really, it's almost like, you know, when you smell something and you're, you know, you have that, you're like, you're sent back right into the moment. It's exactly like that. The clothing has that sort of aspect for her. There's one where she said, I bought this at an auction in 1855 or 56. I had my first picture taken in this dress was in 1858, taken in a car and put in a case and sent to California 20 years after I got it back. Not sure what that means, but I had another picture taken with mother in 1859. Aunt Maria had that, but I have it now made plain and full. The sleeves were narrow and too long and always hung on my hand. Oh, how I hated those sleeves. One of my favorite ones was, oh, this one wore this dress. The first time I saw, you can't read the name, but it's some, I think it's like her brother. The first time I saw blank after his return from the war june 1865 reach the height of bliss when i owned a black silk dress and she talks about where she got it and oh so i hoarded my gold carefully till i bought this in the spring of 1885 mr mrs martin made it for six dollars box pleating and skirt pointed drapery basque with fullness in the back were at first art reception in college and commencement in June 1885. Wore in Iowa in 1885, and in 1894, I put in big puffs on the sleeves, which makes me think of Anna Green Gables. Uh, thank you for sharing her voice and these lovely moments for us. I did notice in a photograph you shared with me that there's a little piece of lace in one of the pages, and I'm wondering if embellishments like lace or maybe buttons are also part of her record keeping. Yes, and in fact, she talks about having some things that were just kept as embellishments. They were separate from the actual garment. They were collars and cuffs and buttons, and they would be attached to the, the garment to be worn for a specific occasion, which is also like a great moment in time. Like you have a, a plain dress, but then you're going to a picnic or a party or something and you put on a lace collar or a lace front piece or something like that to make it a little extra special. Could you tell us a little bit about how sketching features here? Because there's her text and then there's the fabric, but sketching also plays a role, yes? Yes, she was an artist. We have some of her drawings that are separate from the scrapbooks. And she was self-trained as an artist, but was really interested in, in art. And I think personally, I think one of the reasons she loved the documentation of this is because it was so artistic. And so she was able to include sketches of the dresses. And sometimes they were the full dress and sometimes it was just a sleeve or the bodice or a collar or something where she is specifically discussing what changes she made to it over time or the additions that were created for the garment. Could you tell us a little bit about the different kinds of fabrics that are included in her record? Yeah, it's pretty uh, modest stuff. 
you know, this isn't, you know, New York society or whatever. So she's not um, going on and on about silk taffetas and things like that. It's a lot of it. The Neighborville's a farming community in sort of the middle of, of the, it's like, what is it? 30, 40 miles west of Chicago. She has access to the same kind of uh, exposure to these sort of, you know, magnificent fabrics of the time. So there's a lot of poplin, there's a lot of calico, cotton, uh, wool. Uh, later on, there's some snippets of velvet and there's lace throughout, which is I'm sure handmade. Uh, but you know, it's funny. There's a, there's a wonderful passage where she talks about getting uh, her and her sister getting their first white dresses. So the, and, and making them and working on them day and night until they can wear them in the 4th of July parade. So there's a sense of like, there's, there's a preciousness of things, but it's not necessarily because the fabrics are so precious, but it's because like, if you get a white dress as a, you know, a nine or 10 year old girl, it's because you're not going to jump in the, like the swamp <laughs> afterwards. You're not going to get it dirty. It's like, it's, it is an expense that is only for special occasions, but it, it may not be the expensiveness of the fabric. It's the I mean, it's the fact it's a white dress and it can't necessarily be cleaned. Just lastly, Dina, how might listeners interact with this fascinating object? We would encourage, of course, that they visit neighbor settlement, but are there other options as well? So this is great. We are doing an exhibit in next next spring. So um, it'll be around April of 2023. And it's about how 19th century clothing was made and worn. And we have a, a large collection of those kinds of things at Neighbor Settlement. And the whole exhibit starts with Hannah's scrapbook because it's so detailed and she talks so much about the making and wearing of the fabric. But it also will include voices from Chicago theater where they are creating costumes for people to, you know, bespoke items for people to wear in various productions. And the creating of those items and the wearing of those items. So we're talking with costume designers and actors. And also we have people who teach costume design in local colleges who are going to be involved and organizations around Naperville and in the Chicago area who have costume collections from the 19th century. So we're really excited about that. And it gives us a really good way to show Hannah's scrapbook and also our collection at Neighbor Settlement. One of the great things about this scrapbook is that it has been digitized and it has been transcribed. So once the exhibit is open, we will have everything online and available for viewing, including the pages of the scrapbook and the transcripts and the entire exhibit. That's very exciting. It's an intriguing record of a woman's life in 19th century America. Thank you very much, Dina, for sharing it with us. Thank you very much. It was very fun to talk about. Hello, I'm Natalie Lavetri, and I'm pleased to welcome Brandy Goddard to the podcast. Brandy is a doctoral candidate in the Department of Art and Design at the University of Alberta. Her research explores textile crafts, including spinning, which is what we'll be exploring together today. Hello, Brandy, and thank you for joining me today. Hi, Natalie. Thanks very much for having me. Brandy, to get us started, I'm wondering what drew you to spinning wheels? What can these objects tell us about daily life in the 19th century? 
That's a very interesting question, something I've thought about quite a bit. I sort of came to spinning wheels circuitously through my research as a doctoral student. So my particular research looks at this organization from the mid 20th century called the Irish Homespun Society, obviously in Ireland. And they were very much interested in preserving traditional Irish crafts. And so looking at this organization more broadly, I really focused in and honed in on their their focus on homespun, very much, you know, textiles and crafts that were produced in the home. And it very much had a lot to do with spinning. And so sort of I became interested in the history of spinning and spinning wheels through the Irish Homespun Society. That's very interesting. In our present day, we don't often think about where or how the textiles we use and where our socks and our sweaters are are made or where and how the raw materials are gathered. What does this chain of production look like and what connections might this chain give rise to? Yeah, so spinning is super foundational to everything, even today, things that we wear. So most of what today, what we wear is done in industry and mills, uh, even in the 19th century. Obviously, we can talk about mill spun textiles, store-bought clothing. This was very already common at the time, but especially in the areas that I'm interested in, I'm looking at the lives of rural people in the in the 19th century, in the early 20th century, and spinning wheels would have been central to their lives. So spinning wheels, obviously we can talk about the process of spinning. I'm sure that most people can sort of bring up in their mind's eye an image of a spinning wheel, probably the great wheel or the walking wheel, which is that spinning wheel that has the massive wheel right on it. The spinning wheel itself was the the wheel that you picture in your mind is called the drive wheel. And the drive wheel is connected by a string or a belt to the front section of the apparatus. And the spinner themselves would use one hand to spin the drive wheel which then in turn moves the whorl or the winding parts of the spinning wheel. So the spinner would be standing there with these long rolls of combed or carded wool that are held in one hand while they're spinning the wheel with the other hand, guiding these fibers through the front flyer mechanism of the spinning wheel. So it is a really slow an arduous process. It's a lot of manual labor on the part of the spinner. It also is quite an intellectual activity. So it takes a lot of attention to to the spinning. So watching for, you know, the ideal tightness of the yarns that are being spun, um, ensuring that there are no areas of weakness. So I'm not a spinner myself. I have not actually spun anything myself, but I've seen a lot of spinning being done and they make it look effortless, but it's so mesmerizing to watch. Something else that's very interesting about spinning wheels too that I think we don't think about today is just how central they were to life in the 19th century. Most houses would have had a spinning wheel. And so today as art historians, as collectors even, there's no shortage of spinning wheels as artifacts because they were so ubiquitous everywhere. The Canadian Museum of History, for example, has several examples of spinning wheels. They are interesting to look at because there's obviously types of spinning wheels, different models that they would all have been focused on, but they're all unique objects. They are each made with their own style. They have their own intricacies. They all have their own peculiarities that each individual object has. But most homes in the 19th century, and I'm talking specifically here about rural homes, especially farmsteads, they would have had spinning wheels as part of daily life. It was an object that was central to the household. And I like to think of if you're imagining sort of a 19th century woolen sweater, something that fishermen would wear, you know, cloaks that would be central to keeping people warm. It's a whole process. So especially today where we get our clothing so quickly, you know, fast fashion and all of this comes from across the globe. 
it's difficult to imagine a time when even a woolen sweater from start to finish of creation could take up to a year sometimes because you have to think about this whole, um, I like to call it a craft ecology or an ecology of subsistence in the idea that the finished product, the wool sweater really begins with raising and rearing sheep to maturity. So you have to raise a sheep to the point where it yields fleece that you can shear off. Then you need to wash the fleece. It needs to be dyed. Then spinning is sort of a later aspect of creating this sweater. And then once the yarn is spun, then you can actually knit or crochet these sweaters. So it's something that these 19th century homesteaders, they would have done this process from start to finish. And it does, it's a substantial time investment. It's a substantial labor investment. And that's really something I think that is lost today when we don't necessarily think deeply about how the clothing that we put on our bodies is made. Right. This contemporary production line is something we don't often think about. And thank you for describing uh, this process of spinning for our listeners. Brandy, when I think of spinning and spinning wheels, it's often an image of a woman that comes to mind. Was it the case this work was mostly taken on by women? And would this work have been seen as strictly domestic work? Yeah, in my explorations, and I'm by no means an expert on the topic, but spinning, from what I know, overwhelmingly a craft practiced by women. We can talk about, um, obviously, the gendered language I think most people are familiar with of the spinster really just comes from that I believe is a 19th century word that just means a woman who spins. Now today we think of a spinster as being sort of an unmarried woman who's of an advancing age. And so today spinster is something that's quite derogatory, but it really just does relate back to sort of that time when the young women in the household, um, especially this term spinster, I believe comes from sort of wealthier households where the women are still spinning, but they're spinning for their own goods. So oftentimes a spinster would be an unmarried woman who's constantly engaged in the act of spinning yarns that would then be produced into textiles and goods that would be used to outfit her married household. You know, a spinster is somebody today we think of as being unmarried and it was because dating back to those times, you couldn't get married until you had spun all of the yarn that you needed to create all of the blankets and curtains and everything that you needed to outfit your husband's house essentially. Oh, that is so interesting. I never thought about it like that. Taking us back to thinking about this gendered labor, I'm reminded of the typewriter and how the invention of that machine opened a door for women working outside of the home. Did spinning and the spinning wheel help to open a sector or economy of public production available to women that would otherwise not be available during this time? Yeah. So in the case of Ireland, which is basically essentially what I know best. Spinning was always taking place in the household. So it was very much practiced by women in the household for the domestic production of goods for the house. But there was also this economy that existed outside the household, referred to mainly as cottage industry, where shopkeepers or traveling salespeople, even sometimes traveling agents, would contract women to basically produce surplus yarns that they were already spinning for their household, but then they could sell the surplus yarn and get some income that way. 
As far as I know, I don't believe it was ever something that you could really rely on. It was quite contractual and it would be extra income for the farm on top of all of the other work that was being done as well. But it's interesting because the Irish Homespun Society that I look at is from, it's the mid 20th century. So 1935 to 1965, it's right at sort of the tail end of spinning as a practice essentially. So in the 19th century, it happens in the household constantly daily. By the 1960s, spinning wheels are being seen as artifacts of an old bygone era. They're still likely present in the houses, but you know, your grandmother or the great grandmother has passed away and a lot of that spinning knowledge had gone with her. Also by the 1960s, obviously we have easily accessible clothing. Um, people aren't producing their clothing in their home as much anymore. So it is something that passed away over time. And I think, especially the Irish Homespun Society, they were trying to fight the passing of the spinning wheel. They knew that even in Ireland in the 1920s, as most other places, there were mills that could easily produce mill-spun yarn, oftentimes cheaper, uh, higher quality, more consistent quality. But it's something about the craft tradition and the craft knowledge of homespun yarn that had these sometimes anti-modernist ideas attached to it, but also this very idealized sense of, you know, keeping this very embodied knowledge and this craft skill alive, something that was completely lost when we enter this machine and industrial age. It's so interesting that you say that, Brandy. Actually, I have a confession to make. I, Speaking of great-grandmothers, I actually got inherited or passed down my great-grandmother's spinning wheel. So it's a, a Sifton spinning wheel. So it looks a little bit different than the ones that you were describing, but it was kind of a 1930s thing. But I haven't, unfortunately, I've never tried it. I'm not sure how to go about it because it, it is so intricate, right? I love that. I oftentimes, so I'm located in Edmonton, oftentimes if I have a few moments, I'll go on Kijiji because like I said, there's spinning wheels, even 19th century spinning wheels are not that hard to come by. So this morning I was looking on Kijiji. There are two 19th century spinning wheels just for sale. You can get both of them under a thousand dollars each. And it's because they were so common, so common everywhere. And people don't know what to do with them today. <laughs> right. Thinking about like how common and, and uh, I want to touch on a different element. So spinning wheels, they seem to pop up very often in folklore and fairy tales where they're often associated with powerful or a magical energy. I'm thinking of Rumpelstiltskin or the Grimm's, the three spinning women, or one of my favorites, uh, Sleeping Beauty. So why do you think spinning wheels occupy such a prominent place in these tales? Yeah. That is something I have thought about quite a bit, especially because even, yeah, for sure, Sleeping Beauty, like the spinning wheel is central to that whole story where she pricks her finger on the spindle and falls into her deep sleep. And even Rapunzel, oftentimes even in Disney films, she has a spinning wheel in her in her tower. They're very central to sort of this idea of Disney princesses and fairy tales. And again, referring back to what I know best, the Irish stories, the spinning is something that I guess if we can back up a little bit and talk about the practice of spinning itself. So women were largely responsible for spinning, but it was something of a secondary activity. So women were also responsible for raising the children, taking care of the domestic household, uh, oftentimes taking care of the domestic farm animals as well, milking cows, collecting eggs. And so spinning was central to the household, but it was also something that needed to take place after all of the other work had been done. 
So oftentimes, spinning took place at night or in the evenings after all of the other work of the day had been done. So you oftentimes will see instances of women taking their spinning wheels to their neighbors' houses. They would have these gatherings, these social events where they're going to gossip and, you know, have some food, have some tea or drinks. They're going to sing songs while they're spinning, while they're producing this yarn that's so central to their lives. There's a lot of warnings as well, especially when we get into the folklore and fairy tales about spinning, something that happens at night, but you don't want to overwork yourself. You don't want to stay up all night spinning. So in the case of the Irish folklore, um, there's all these warnings about, you know, don't stay up too late spinning at your spinning wheel because the fairies, as they're passing by outside on their nightly travels, they're going to hear the whir of the spinning wheel, or they're going to see the smoke coming out of your hearth chimney or the soft light of your candle. And fairies love spinning. They're very adept at spinning. So they're more likely to come into your household. And with the fairies comes mischief and certain elements of danger as well. So it's these very fantastical stories, but very much a practical element of, you know, you've worked all day long on the domestic on these domestic tasks. Don't stay up all night spinning at the spinning wheel. I love that. I love that. And it's interesting too, almost a way to keep this leisure activity in check. Is there anything else that you would like to share pertinent on your mind about spinning wheels for our listeners today? That is a great question. I feel like there's so much. Yes. One thing that's that's really in my own research has come out a lot is this idea of the intergenerational transmission of these craft skills. So that's something I look at quite a lot, not only in the context of spinning, but just traditional crafts in general, was these were largely, even if you think about, you know, the women gathering to spin together, they're trading skills back and forth, they're passing on this information between themselves. Young girls, sometimes even as young as five, six, seven years old, were trained on spinning wheels as well. So it's something that they started really early. Children also would be taught the basics of other elements of creating yarn. So dyeing, they would be going out and collecting plants and lichens that would be used to naturally dye the yarns as well. So this is things that you're using your children to help ease the labor, ease these tasks, but it's something that they're being taught very early on. And it's something that spinning is, as most traditional craft skills, I would say, are, are embodied knowledge. You can't necessarily learn from a book how the ideal tension of the yarn as you're spinning it. It's something that you need to have this tangible sense of. And so very much so, this is something that in order to pass on these craft skills, they need to be taught and they need to be practiced. And they need to be, you know, this embodied sense of you, you have the feel for it. It's not something that you can sit back and learn from a textbook like so many of the things we learn today. As soon as these skills get transferred outside of the home, as soon as most of this spinning takes place in the, in the factories or in industry, this intergenerational transmission of knowledge was interrupted and then essentially lost as well. And that's when you have these spinning wheels being put up on the shelves, being put into the attic, and a lot of this tangible you know, embodied skill being lost. Interesting. Brandy, you have given us a lot to think about regarding 19th century textile production, as well as the histories kind of embedded into the spinning wheels. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you very much for having me. I'm pleased to welcome Lucy Hines, the Assistant Curator for the Daily Life and Leisure Program at the Royal Alberta Museum. Lucy has worked with textile collections from around the world, 
but in 2010 she began working on the history of quilt making in Alberta, and I'm delighted to share that she recently published her findings in her 2022 book, Alberta Quilt Makers and Their Quilts. Lucy joins us today to talk about a specific kind of quilt known as a crazy quilt. Lucy, what is a crazy quilt? <laughs> well, thank you for that lovely introduction, Vanessa, and I'm happy to, to be here. And yes, our crazy quilts are wonderful, wonderful quilts. A crazy quilt basically is a quilt where scraps of fabric of any color, any size and any any shape are placed on a foundation fabric and usually sort of stitched down with beautiful embroidery stitches. Um, so basically that's sort of what a crazy quilt would look like. Now, many people would think that we call it crazy quilt because it's all over the place, crazy, but that is not why it's called crazy quilt. And I'll get to that a little later. So Lucy, I happen to have a store find, a thrift store find in front of me. Right. And uh, just as you say, many different kinds of fabric are involved here. There is a very inexpensive felty calicoe backing fabric. It's open to me on one side. And I'm struck by the combination of colors, but also different kinds of fabrics. But I'm wondering if I can ask you about the kinds of skills required the Victorian crazy quilts were predominantly art pieces. So they were a way for women to showcase their needlework skills. At the time of the uh, Victorian era, when the crazy quilts were quite popular, um, which would have been really between 1880 to 1900, the Quilt is a crazy quilt is believed to have been inspired by the Japanese uh, exhibit at the Philadelphia exhibition uh, in 1876. And this would have been the first, it was the centennial exhibition and the first World Fair in the United States. And so what inspires the crazy quilt is the asymmetrical design that was uh, seen at the Japanese uh, pavilion. Uh, apparently, when you walked into the pavilion, there would have been some kind of painting um, on the wall of a priest walking and, and the cobblestone looked very much like broken glass or crazed pottery. And they also had crazed pottery on display. So this is believed to have been part of the inspiration to make crazy quilts is it's the this aesthetic of creating something that was asymmetrical, as well as at the same time, the uh, Royal School of Embroidery was also displaying beautiful pieces of embroidery. And that school had only been begun in 1872. So just four years prior to the Centennial Exhibition. And they were, of course, from England, coming to the United States and bringing these beautiful embroideries. So the combination of women doing needlework, which they were encouraged to do. We see that in many of the women's magazines at that time. And it was one of the 
not only ways, but the most popular way for women to be able to show their uh, creativity. Also at that time, you know, women dress, you had silks, you had velvets, you had beautiful fabrics that were um, available. And also at that time in the United States, they were now producing their own silk. It was more affordable. Uh, previously, it had to be imported from England and of course would have been very expensive. So it, it's a confluence of many different elements that sort of come together. And so here the women had an opportunity to use up scraps. They were very good at using everything. Nobody, didn't matter how rich you were, nobody threw uh, anything away. Even Queen Victoria was known to give some of her old garments to her servants um, so that they could use them. So these crazy quilts became artworks. They were usually seen in parlors. They would be draped over a table. They would be draped over a settee. And it was really for people to know the, the needlework skills of the wom woman of the house. And the idea was that in a crazy quilt, the one making the quilt was supposed to have at least a hundred different stitches in this quilt. And these quilts were very rarely bed-sized quilts. They weren't used uh, for the beds. They were definitely uh, to show. Lucy, thank you for all of that. I think when we tend to think from a, a non-expert perspective about quilting, we think of the social aspects of quilting, of things like quilting bees. But these sound like quite independent projects that women would pursue alone. Is that correct? Absolutely. This was not something that was done um, as a group, as part of a quilting bee, where, you know, the purpose of a quilting bee was to to quickly quilt, adding the stitches that um, would keep in place the, the three layers of a regular quilt, which was the top, the fill, and the backing. A crazy quilt did not have a fill, and so there was no need for quilting a crazy quilt. Um, they would only tie them. In fact, quilting would end up interfering with the beautiful designs in the crazy quilt. And the crazy quilt not only had the beautiful needlework uh, stitches that went around every scrap of fabric that was attached to a, a cotton backing, but there was ribbon work and they would apply different little patches, like certainly uh, when cigarette silks became popular, which were little premiums that were placed inside of cigarette packages. And usually they were of flowers or in Canada, there would be the provinces of, of Canada, um, sometimes sports related motifs. And these would have, have been collected and, and applied onto the crazy quilt as well. Maybe with those references to the Canadian context in mind, Lucy, we could turn to your book, Alberta Quiltmakers and Their Quilts. To write this book, you collaborated with 38 museums to host public quilt documentation events capturing the history of quilting. Can you tell us a little bit about that process? 
Uh, yes. So when I began my project in researching the history of Alberta quilting, um, I was wondering how I was going to be able to capture that history, um, knowing that many of these quilts would probably still be in our private collections. Um, that it's not necessarily the quilts that are in museums that have that rich history, but the ones that still remain in the homes because they are special and they have a, a history. So I decided that um, the best way to do this was to contact the various museums throughout Alberta to see if they would be willing to host a documentation event. And then I would also partner with the quilt, the local quilt guilds because I needed some assistance. And so together we were able to, usually it was a, a two-day event where the first day I would be documenting the museum's quilts. And this served as training for the quilters who were assisting me in terms of the process of how we go about documenting a quilt so that we were prepared for the next day, which was then a public event, which would have been advertised and people would have made uh, appointments to bring their family quilts to the museum to be documented. And so this is how I was able to collect the history of Alberta quilting. I was also strict in terms of the quilts had to have been either part of these settlers' effects that were brought to Alberta or they were made in Alberta. There are many people that would have, you know, purchased quilts elsewhere or they would have been, you know, maybe at a value village, but we don't know the history of that quilt. So we needed to have, know that at least it was made in, in Alberta. And also that it had to predate 1970 because had I not stated that date, chances were that I would end up with a lot more of the late 20th century quilts and uh, early 21st century quilts to be documented because quilters have been so prolific as of basically 1970. So I wanted to eliminate those quilts so that I could really tease out the older quilts, which I think I was quite successful in doing. Lucy, it sounds like a fascinating process for all of the people who were involved. Mm -hmm. Just as a last question, Lucy, your knowledge of, of crazy quilting and of quilting history more generally is based on research, but has also been enriched by your own quilting practice. So mm -hmm. can I ask you to share a little bit about your own work, perhaps as a crazy quilt creator? Well, I'm, I must admit, I'm not... a. Uh... I'm a recent crazy quilt creator. I have always, I have sewn since I was 11 years old, making my own clothes and other things, uh, crafting. I have done needlework all of my life, embroidery. I'm quite known in my family for embroidering everyone's wedding dresses. But I didn't start quilting until my mid-40s, actually when I had my first grandchild. And I think most of my children were out of the home at that time. So I, I inherited uh, a room of my own, as I like to, to say, in terms of having a space where I could be more creative. And and so it was as I was learning to quilt and, and 
buying all sorts of books and I came across crazy quilts and I thought, wow, like this is a, it brings like two loves together. It, you know, the, the making of a quilt, but also the handwork because I'm very drawn to doing things by hand as opposed to by machine and crazy quilting is definitely, you know, what, what allows me to, to do that. And um, so most of my projects so far have been smaller projects. They have been gifts to, to give away. Um, so they had to be done fairly quickly uh, doing, you know, a bed size quilt as a crazy quilt would take a long time. And uh, so that's, I'm saving that one for when I'm retired, which uh, is coming up. Lucy, it's been lovely speaking with you. You've helped me understand this history and also my own thrift store find so much more than I did before. So thank you very much, Lucy. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you to guests Dina Kalman Spurl, Brandy Goddard, and Lucy Hines. Thank you also to my co creators Anne Hung, Jesse Cron, Natalie Lovetri, and Lucy Von Schilling. As always, by way of goodbye, we invite you to stay in touch by following us on Twitter at Crafty Victorian and by visiting our website, craftingcommunities.net. Be sure to check out the curated content we share for each episode including this one, on the podcast page of the Crafting Communities website. Victorian Samplings was recorded and produced on the territory of the Lenkwangan and Sanchofan-speaking communities of the Songhees, Esquimo, and Wasanich peoples, and on Treaty 1 territory, traditional land of the Anishinaabe, Cree, Oji Cree, Dakota, and Dene peoples, and homeland of the Métis Nation. Victorian Samplings is the podcast of the Crafting Communities Project, which is supported by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, the Victorian Studies Association of Western Canada, and the Universities of Alberta, Manitoba, and Victoria. The project is a collaboration between Andre Corda, Mary Elizabeth Layton, and me, Vanessa Warren. Thank you for listening.